Okay. Today's class is dedicated in memory of a really wonderful woman as well who had who handled heart challenges unbelievably well. Diane Azrak, Master Aliyah Shalom, Dina Batsara, by her husband, Louis Masri, who is my cousin. So, you know, a lot of people I know from now, Louis is one of those people I grew up with, my mother's cousin. And um, the way Louis built his family, and then when he married Diane, and the beautiful, beautiful marriage that they had, and the way they had, and the dignity which they carried themselves, and the way she was, I still remember her very well, especially at the end, coming to classes when we give them in Diyashul before Menchan Saturdays in the summer. And she always had a very aristocratic and dignified way about her. And so it's, and our children really follow in this beautiful path. We're close to many of our children and grandchildren. And so it's an honor for our words today to be dedicated in memory of Dina Batsara. So thank you, Louis Masri, and Hashem should give you strength and biracha and your children and I really, Baruch Hashem, doing wonderful in so many ways. I also want to mention, although it's not at all the dedication, today's the yard site of my first cousin, Esther Abud, Shalom, who basically half ran the Hatzalah and Dio, and then suddenly got sick, and some procedure didn't go well, and she passed away with three children, and mashallah, she's had a number of grandsons since she passed, but she passed very young. She was in her 40s. So, Auntie Anna, who listens to every, you know Auntie Anna? You don't know Auntie Anna, I don't know who you are. My Auntie Anna, so my Auntie Anna who listens to every single class and sends me a text message after every single one. Auntie Anna, we're thinking about you, we love you, we care about you. And Baruch Hashem, Hashem's given you a tremendous amount of nahat from Esther, even though with it came so much pain. And so our words today should be, Eloi Neshama. Okay, are we ready? Can we get happy? Or we're not allowed to be happy? Okay. Life is about questions. That means most of what you do is based on the questions you ask yourself. That means when you ask yourself the question, when someone wakes up in the morning and says, how am I going to earn a living? Now they start spending time pursuing the answer to that question. Or where am I going on vacation? Now they're going to spend time to figure out where to go. Or there's a lot of people in last month that said, had the question, how am I getting myself to Florida? And then they figured out how to get there. Maybe tonight, the afternoon, you can ask yourself the question, what am I making for dinner? You ever asked that question? And then you spend time to pursue the answer to the question. Everything you do in your life is about questions you ask yourself. What should I wear today? Where should I go? How should I shop? Do I have enough money for it? How do I get myself enough money? Am I taking my kids? Where should I pick up? Who should I see? All our life is asking ourselves questions and then answering our questions. Today's class is going to focus on the most important question you can ever ask yourself. Absolutely, unequivocally, undoubtedly, the most important question one can ever ask themselves. And our whole class today is going to be about this one critical question. That if you have the right answer to this question, 
or if the answer to this question is the right positive way, then you're good. And if you have the wrong answer to this question, you're really not good. Nothing can, this is the most important question of all time. I'll give it to you in a minute. Now we transition into the book of Shemot. We go through about 200 years very, very quickly. The Jewish people are in Egypt. Yosef passed away. All the brothers passed away. Now the tribes start to grow and they start to flourish. And now it's hundreds of thousands of Jews that are living in Egypt. And slowly they're living in bondage and in suffering. Parot tries to kill the baby boys. Then he has the boys thrown into the river. And then this little boy is born. He's put into a basket. And he ultimately grows up to become Moshe Rabbeinu. You know the story. He saves one man from being hit. He stops another fight. And then he runs away to the town area of Midian. He's there for a while. He finds a girl. He marries her. And eventually, when he's about 80 years old, he sees God at the burning bush. All in this week's parasha. And Hashem says to him, you're going to go back to the Jewish people. And you are going to redeem them and take them out of Egypt. Moshe Rabbeinu says, they're not going to trust me. They're not going to trust that I'm the one. I mean, they've been in suffering for so long, for so many years now, two, so over two centuries. They're not going to trust me that I'm the one and that I'm really able to take them out of Egypt. So Hashem gives Moshe Rabbeinu three signs. You know the three signs. First one was take your stick, throw it to the ground, and the stick turned into a snake. Then Moshe Rabbeinu bends down, picks it up, and it turns back into a snake. Stick. Next sign was he takes his hand, puts it into his on his chest, into his jacket, and it turns in comes okay. out and it's white leprosy. It has sarat. He puts his hand back in and now it's clean. And then the third sign. He takes water, pours it on the ground, it turns into blood, and God says, You're gonna go to Paro, you're gonna go to the Jewish people, you're gonna show them these three signs, and they are going to believe that you are the man to redeem them out of Egypt. That's our parasha. I want to focus on those three signs. I want to know why Moshe Rabbeinu needs to perform a sign where he takes a stick, why does it have to be with a stick, and then he throws it to the ground, turns into a snake, and then he grabs it back up and makes it a stick again. Why is that an important sign that the Jewish people need to see as their first symbol from their new future leader, the greatest leader of all time? The next sign is going to be put his hand in his jacket and it turns into Sarat. Also sounds like a pretty strange sign. And then the third one is why is this the most important one? He's going to take water, he's going to pour it onto the floor, it's going to turn into blood. But first I need to get to that question. To really be honest, the question I'm going to tell you is the scariest question you could ask yourself as well. It is so scary, there's this question and only this question that keeps me up at night. And I started thinking about this, I mean I've thought about this question many, many times, but a couple of weeks ago on Friday night and I just in the middle of the table I said to my wife, I said, honey, I want to know the truth. This question, I say this one question that I could ask myself, that we all could ask ourselves, that really scares the daylights out of me. And I don't know how to answer it. It's such a frightening question and it's such a scary question. Should I tell you what the question is? Good. The question is, how am I doing right now in Hashem's book? How am I doing right now in Hashem's eyes? That question is frightening. Because I have no idea the answer. Like, no idea. I have no idea what the answer is to that question. In Hashem's eyes right now, how is Joey Haber doing? How are you doing in Hashem's eyes? And I'll tell you why I have no idea. 
because there are opinions out there that would say that everything I do is right, and there's opinions out there that would say everything I do is wrong. So I may have on my opinion, but I really don't know where I stand in Hashem's book. I'll, let me give you an example so I could crystallize why this question is so scary and why it's so impossible to answer. You have half the Jewish world right now that believes that wearing masks is like destroying society and stopping Torah and stopping prayers and the worst thing ever. You have the other half of Jewish society that believes that those that don't wear masks are murderers and the biggest chilul Hashem of all time. Am I right about both sides? Yes? So, I, again, one side believes mask is a massive bitul Torah, the worst thing ever. And the other side says that no mess is mass murder and literally you're killing people and it's the biggest chilul Hashem that's ever happened. So if you're on which team, do you know 100% for sure that you're right? What if you're on the mask team and we really shouldn't be wearing masks this whole time because we're stopping everyone from praying and learning and doing what they need to do? Or what if you're on the non-mask team and the real answer is that you really, you're, you're actually hurt causing people to die and you're making a massive chilul Hashem that like you've never made in your life? I don't know. What if I'm supposed to spend my whole life learning? Or what if I'm supposed to spend my whole life earning? I don't know, I'm for sure, right? That question doesn't scare you? It scares me all the time. Maybe I could have learned so much more than I do. Maybe I'm supposed to know so much more Torah than I do right now. Or maybe the opposite. Maybe there are hundreds of people whose phone I haven't answered or haven't called back that I really could have helped and I didn't help. This question, and I'm not exaggerating, I'm not overstating it, this question scares me, I don't want to say to death, but it scares me to death. I can't tell you how scary this question is. Because I could know that I'm, I, I think I'm pretty confident that I'm a good person, but I have no idea. Maybe I could be so much better. So I tell you, and I'm going to give you a few famous quotes. This is one of the most famous Jewish stories of all time. This story literally haunts me. It's a story about the Netziv of Alajan. He lived about, he passed away about 150 years ago. He was a great, great rabbi. And you may know the story, and I'm not going to tell you the whole story because I've said it a million times, and if you haven't heard it from me, you've heard it from the entire world. But the long story short is that when he was a little boy, he, well, excuse me, he went, he made a siyum one time on like Shas, but maybe the thousandth time. That's what legend goes, and how it's even possible to read Shas a thousand times. But let's say he said he finished Shas, that's an amass, that's an unbelievable accomplishment. That's like no one alive today has ever done that. And maybe no one in the last 200 years has ever done a thousand times. It's crazy. And he's written books on Gemara and books on Chumash and so on. So he gets up at this room and he says, I need to tell you a little story. I was a little boy. Maybe I was nine years old. And I was behind the door and I heard my mother and father talking. And they're talking about me, little Naftali Yehuda. And they said that, you know, he's Hazid. He doesn't do so well in school. They didn't say Hazid. They lived in wherever they lived, Germany. They didn't say Hazid. They said Nebuch. He's not doing well in school. You know what? It's not worth the money to put him in school. Let's make him a shoemaker. And I heard my mother cry. He says, and those tears moved me so much. I said, I am determined. I'm going to make it. And I told, went into the kitchen. I said, I'm going to go back to Yeshiva and I'm going to learn. And I learned and I became what I became. And now I finished Shas a thousand times. And he says, he says, imagine if I became that shoemaker. I would have been a good shoemaker. I would have been an honest man. So I would have charged people the right price. I would have done everything wonderfully. He says, and after 
120 years, I'd go before God in heaven, and Hashem would say, Naphtali, you the three, what'd you do? And I would say, oh, look, look at all the people out, look at all the customers. And he'd say, customers, that's wonderful, you made shoes? You're supposed to finish Shas a thousand times. You're supposed to have written Sefarim that would be used 200 years from now on Chumash, and Sefarim on Gemara that would be used by students, thousands of students. All you did was do shoes, and I would have said, Hashem, what? I, I, I know shoes, I know leather, I know souls. We're talking about Shas. I wouldn't have even imagined that I can do this. That story frightens me. Because who knows? Maybe one day Hashem's going to say, you could have taught so many more people. Or you could have learned so much more Torah. Or you could have done so much more good. Or there's people that you could have helped that you didn't help. As an example, and just in case there's some people in the room and say, ah, oh, you're a rabbi, you're a pretty good person, it can't be that bad. I don't know. You all know I like sports a little bit. Not that many rabbis that are yeshivish rabbis that like sports. And I, I, I question myself. Maybe I wasted time. A part of me says it's good. I had an outlet. Another part of me says, you know what? Maybe you wasted time. You wasted energy. You're thinking about whether the Yankees win. You got mad at the Eagles on Sunday night. Maybe you're thinking about, maybe you're thinking about nonsense when you could be thinking about so much more. I have a smartphone. Part of, half the people would say, of course you need a smartphone, Rabbi. You're so busy, people need to reach you, and there's so much you could do with it. And the other half of the people say, having a smartphone basically makes you not Jewish. And you think I'm joking, go around Israel and go to Haredi neighborhoods, and they would say, you're a rabbi who teaches Torah and stuff like that. You think you can do that? You have a smartphone? I am scared stiff. I don't know that I'm right. I'm really scared stiff. And you should also be scared stiff. I'm not just here making a confession about myself. This is about all of us. We could ask ourselves these questions. I'll give you another example. Last week I gave a class. Greg, I think it was a wonderful class. In the class, I said a little line about the vaccine, that if you could take that the Freddie was shot, you could take the vaccine. Taurus, they took a little clip of it and put it on SY Alerts. So the whole community saw the little quote. So 95% of people saw it, said, oh, it's so funny. There's a few people said, oh, it's not nice. Wasn't so nice, doctor. Wasn't so nice. I'm closer to Dr. Fariwa than I am to my brother. I mean, I, I love him. You know what I mean? I, trust me. But maybe I was wrong. Maybe I did something that was a little negative. Someone else told me last week, you know, you made it sound like Rukhayan Kanievsky doesn't care about people because at 3 o'clock he closes the door and you can't meet him, even if it's a widow crying outside. So maybe I made it sound like Kedolim are careless and don't care about other people. And I don't know how many people listen to this class. So maybe I publicly degraded Gedolim. You know how big that sin is? Again, I'm not here to just tell you how scared I should be. My point is how scared you should be. Because, you know, there's a pasuk that we say in Hichavot every day. Rabot mahashavot belev ish. Man has a lot of thoughts. Ve'atzat Adonai hi takum. And it's Hashem's thought, Hashem's advice, Hashem's plan that's going to stand. The simple meaning of it is that we all have man plans and God laughs. That we all have our plans, but Hashem's plan is ultimately going to last. And the proof of it is everyone in this room right now is wearing a mask. No one ever would have dreamt a year ago that you would be doing so. Hashem knew. Hashem's plan less. But there's another meaning to it. We have a lot of thoughts in our head of what we're going to tell Hashem. We have a lot of answers already. We have answers in our mind. We have it prepared. We have the answers prepared of why we do what we do. And Hashem is going to have 
the last word. Because ultimately, Hashem's answer is going to be the one that lasts. As an example, you ever speak Lashon Hara? No? Okay. Then maybe the question, scary question is not for you. But if you ever speak Lashon Hara, you know the conversation that happens in your head right before. I shouldn't say this. This is Lashon Hara. But then you say, you know what? It's allowed because it's true. And then you say, you know what? Even though maybe it's not allowed because it's true, but it's allowed because they're a bad person. And it's allowed because I'm really helping. Because when I say Lashon Hara, I'm going to protect this person if they ever meet them, even though they're never going to meet them, but they may meet them. And you know what? Even if I don't do it for them, it's helping me by I'm getting it off my chest. So I'm doing it for a purpose. And I once heard in a class that if I'm doing it for a reason, it's, it's okay. And we tell ourselves all those little excuses in 22 and four seconds, and boom, it comes out. And the reality is, we have a lot of thoughts. We're going to get up to heaven. Hashem's going to say, you said this. And you're going, he's going, you're going to say, oh, but I meant. Hashem's going to say, it was Lashon Hara. Stop fooling me. There was no purpose. You know it was no purpose. There were regular good people. I don't care if it was the truth. You didn't even know it was the truth. And even if it was the truth, it doesn't help you one iota. And that was Lashon Hara. And we're going to have not one word to say. This frightens me. Does it frighten you? Does it frighten you yet? Am I scaring you yet? Because if I'm not scaring you, you're not hearing me enough. You should be scared by this class. You should be nervous by this question. Because it's very difficult to answer this question. The Gemara is a famous Gemara. The Gemara in, in Yuma says that a, well, a poor man is going to come before God. Everything I'm telling you so far is famous. We'll get to some of the things that's not so famous. I keep hearing someone's phone. I'm not sure why. The Gemara says, this is a famous Gemara. Gemara says a poor person is going to come before God and he's going to say, ah, what am I going to do? I was too poor to be able to study Torah. And God's going to show him Hillel. Hillel is a famous story. Hillel made $1 a day, 50 cents he used for his family, and 50 cents he used to get into the yeshiva. One day he was chopping wood, he only made a half a dollar. He goes to the yeshiva, they won't let him in. He climbs to this roof and he slips on top of the, lays down on top of the sunroof. I hope you've heard the story before. Lays on top of the sunroof and he's listening to the Torah learning and snow starts to fall. It's freezing cold. I don't know how many feet of snow falls on top of him. The next day he's almost frozen to death. The students bring him down. They revive him in a fire. Hillel was so poor he still learned Torah. And then the Gemara tells you, there's some other people are going to say, oh, I was so wealthy, I had so many buildings, I had so many things going on, I had so much to manage, I couldn't study Torah. Hashem says, Elazar ben Hansum is the answer to you. Because Elazar ben Hansum was unbelievably wealthy, owned a thousand cities and a thousand ships, and he still was able to find a way to study Torah. And then other people are going to say, listen, I have a lot of temptation, I have a lot of desire, I was good looking, I was handsome, people wanted me, I had a lot of desire. Hashem's going to say, Yosef at Sadiq is the response because Yosef had all kinds of temptation. He looked great, very handsome. The wife of Potiphar tries to change her clothing every morning and every night just to seduce him. She did everything possible to get him and he didn't succumb. So Hillel is the response to poor people. Rabbi Lazar ben Hasum, Elazar ben Hasum is the response to wealthy people. And Yosef is the response to people of temptation. It's actually hinted in the Pasuk. Man has a lot of thoughts, a lot of excuses. And Hashem's response, He takum. How do you spell He? Hey, Yud, Aleph. 
Hillel, Yosef, and Elazar. Hey, Yud, Aleph. Hashem just going to show us those three people and say, where are your excuses now? Now tell me what, explain to me, what's your explanation now? If what we're saying right now is resonating with you, then I think you need to stop for a minute and say, one second, are there any sins that I know I do? Are there any sins that I know I do? Because if there are sins that you know you do, if you think you have some answer prepared, I'm here to tell you from now, the answer is not going to work. So I don't care if the answer is, my friends do it. I don't care if the answer is, when we go away, everybody does it. I don't care if the answer is, Rabbi, what do you want me to do? You want me to eat kosher in a kosher restaurant? There's too many Hasidim in those places. I can't do it. I don't care what you think your answer is going to be. I'm here to tell you that when it comes to straight up laws, the answers are not going to work. They're just not going to work. So if it's Lashon Hara, if it's choosing not to pray, if it's what you eat, if it's how you observe Shabbat, if it's what you dress, if you think you have an answer, I'm just here to tell you not to frighten you, although maybe I have already. I'm just here to tell you, and as much as I'm telling you to tell me, that any answer we think we have, is not going to happen because God is not open for excuses. Maybe you have a reason why you didn't do something strict. Maybe you could have done more chesed. Maybe you'll have an excuse for why you didn't do as much chesed. But if you think you're going to have an excuse for a sin that you know is a sin, you have something coming. That's why this question is so scary because we all like to soothe ourselves by saying we're good people. I'm a good person. I'm a nice person. I'm friendly to my neighbors. I'm a wonderful person, and I believe in God. Um, that, that should be good enough. Maybe it is. I don't think so. I don't think we would put on this earth to just be smile and be nice people, give charity every now and then, and believe in God. I think we would put on this earth to serve God and do His Torah, unless you don't believe in this God. But if you believe in this God, then you believe we would put on this earth to do His Torah. So if you think we're going to have answers, and we think that the excuses are going to work, Hashem's going to say, you don't think Hillel had an excuse? You don't think Hillel had an excuse? The man had 50 cents, couldn't get into the place. He got it to the yeshiva, they told him, leave. Yeah, that's a pretty good excuse to me. You don't think Rabbi Azam and Hasum had an excuse? You don't think Yosef HaSadiq had an excuse? What do you want from me, God? You threw me into Egypt. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm sitting in this man's palace. I have, I have no siblings. My father basically abandoned me. My brothers all abandoned me. My mother already passed away. I'm in this foreign country. I'm a servant to this man in this house. What do you want from me? The answer would sound so good. If he was talking to me, I would have said, Yosef, you're so right. I feel for you. You tried your hardest. You did your best. What could you do? But Hashem is going to say, no, I don't want to hear it. Because we, this question is frightening. There's a great rabbi, lived about 250 years ago, great, great rabbi. His name is the Gaon of Vilna. Anyone here hear the Gaon of Vilna? The Gaon of Vilna used to have another friend, another rabbi, Dubna Magid, who would come to him on Fridays and give him rebuke. And would, I would, I would give him, tell him what he can do better. And the Gaon of Vilna, and one day the Divna Magid says, you know, you're the Gaon of Vilna. He was one of the greatest rabbis literally of the last 500 years. No exaggeration. Everyone agrees. One of the greatest rabbis really of the last half a millennium. The Gaon of Vilna. He says, you think you're so great? You're so great. You stay inside and study Torah all day. Why don't you try going to the city? Why don't you try going to Manhattan? Let's see how great you'd be. 
And the Gaon of Vilna, for a few minutes, cried. He says, maybe you're right. Maybe I could have been better. And then he answered, he says, I think I'm pretty confident that I don't have the ability to do that. I think I was born to do this. But for all of us, this should frighten us. So I told this to a colleague of mine this past Friday. He walked into my office. I said, you know, I'll tell you the truth, Rabbi. This, story, this question frightens me. I get so scared. How do I know how I rate in Hashem's eyes? I'm really nervous. So he says, no, Rabbi, you know you're doing good because there's a Mishnah that says, anyone that people like, Hashem also likes. So if people like you, then Hashem likes you. So I think people like what you do and people like the Torah you teach and people like your classes. So therefore that means you're doing good. So for a second I said, oh, you know what, I feel good now. <laughs> then I said, one second, people like Nancy Pelosi too. Where's... <laughs> There's people who like basketball players. There's, you go to somewhere in the middle of Afghanistan, everyone in the neighborhood likes the terrorist. So how do I know? Just because people like, what does that mean? Uh, maybe I, I'm different. I do think I'm different because by me, even Ben Shapiro's wife likes me. Did you know that? Oh, there was someone who went to a conference of Republicans like a year ago, and he had a conversation with Ben Shapiro, and he's talking about his rabbi, Rabbi Joey Haber. Ben Shapiro says, I don't know who that is. So Ben Shapiro's wife is standing right there. She says, honey, yes, you do. I listen to his classes all the time. So doesn't that make it cool? That's it. I'm going straight to heaven. It means nothing. It means less than nothing. It's cute. It's cute. But it means nothing. It doesn't mean one thing. So I had someone else tell me. Again, I'm really, if you notice, do you see how much I'm struggling with this question? Because it really torments me. Because every other question I know I can, most questions I could solve. If my question is, how do I teach more people Torah? How do I learn more Torah? Or how do I do more chesed or get more charity? I could go home and try to figure it out. But this, I don't even know if I know how to figure it out. Because I don't even know what necessarily I'm supposed to do. You know, I work in Maggie David High School. Maybe every kid is supposed to graduate that school like a prince. And maybe every kid that doesn't graduate like a prince and a princess, maybe it's my fault. Maybe there's something I could have done. And that's a real question. And I'm not, again, there's no humility here. And there's no being me being cute here. This is real. Maybe I, there's so much more I could have done. This question scares me. So someone else said, oh, no, but you kind of sometimes see when Hashem is helping you along. So I'll tell you a story for that one. This is a true story. True story. It happened a little while ago. A boy, yeshiva boy, went to Israel on a plane. And it happens to be a seat on the plane was like right next to a girl. Yeshiva boy, say a word to the girl. Good, right next to a girl. He goes to the kotel. Happens to be when he goes to the kotel, he bumps into the girl again. Then he goes to pray at Amuka. You know, Amuka, that's where all the singles pray. Prays at Amuka and he's coming out. The girl is there too. Now he goes on a plane on the way home back to America. And the girl sitting next to him on the plane. He gets home, he calls the shotgun, he says, I need to date this girl. Hashem obviously is putting her around me. Obviously, this is the one. So he dated her very short because he knew she, this was the one before he was even going in. A couple of dates, they got engaged, they got married. Three weeks later, they got divorced. <laughs> My point is just because you bump into an amuka in the court, that doesn't mean. Just because Hashem may help you find a parking spot doesn't mean that now all of a sudden you're a good person. Just because it doesn't mean. Because Hashem could help us do good, and Hashem could help us do bad. 
Do you see what I'm trying to do here? I'm trying to get rid of all of the fake nonsense that you and me have in our head to excuse ourselves for our lifestyle. We tell ourselves we're good. We tell ourselves other people are worse than us. We tell ourselves that we have good excuses because our family is this way or our friends are this way or we were raised this way, or our community is this way. We tell people that, you know what, if people like me and I'm a good person, it, could, it must be in Shemaim, I'm also going to be a good person. Or maybe we tell other people, we see how Hashem is on our side, so it tells us all that we're really good. But the reality is, you still haven't answered the question. And the reality is, you still don't know whether you're doing it right or not. So I want to look at Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu on when now he's going to get the symbols, this first symbols that signs that he's going to show the Jewish people. The first sign that this nation is going to get as a nation. Before they will receive the Torah, before they split the sea, before ten plagues, before the bondage even stops. The first thing they're going to see from their leader is these three signs. The Malbim and his commentary and the Chumash. It's going to show us how these three signs are capture in it what is the mission of a Jew on this planet Earth. The first sign he says, mate. Mate is a stick. There are other words for stick. Makel is a stick you use to hit with. Mish'an is a stick that you use to lean on like a cane. But a mate is a stick of honor, a stick of glory. It's the stick, it's the staff of a king. That's a mateh. God tells Moshe Rabbeinu, take this mateh, because you see that stick of honor and glory can really go two ways. Because inside of us, we have two pulls. We have one pull to be a ish, to be a man, to be a man of greatness. And we have another pull which pulls us down to our basic um, desires. And that was all hinted and represented on the first day of creation. Because on the first day of creation, there was this pull between man and man. That woman wasn't the problem. Who was the real start of the problem? Do you want woman to be the problem? I'm looking at a woman. woman. <laughs> what was the first start of the problem? The Nahash, the snake. Man is royalty and greatness. The Nahash, the snake, is everything basic and tempting and all the desires of the world. Hashem said, take the stick. And throw it to the ground. And watch how easy we can all turn into a snake. The first message is, watch how easy you can be pulled into your temptations and your desires. But then Moshe Rabbeinu bends it, bends, bends down and holds the stick in his hand. To say that if I take hold of my desires and I take hold of my temptations and I am in control of my life. If I am in control of my life, then that then that's what we're here to do as a Jew. Not to allow ourselves to fall to the ground like a, like this very basic and, and immoral snake, but rather hold it in our hands with royalty and be in control of the temptations of your life. That's what we're put here to do. Are we living life in control or are we living life without control? Which is a beautiful thought, but still doesn't answer the question. Because you know why? I could be in full control and I could be in full control of my stick. I could have full control of my temptations, my desires. I could be, but it, maybe I'm doing it all for me. 
Maybe I'm doing it all for my glory, for my fame, for my popularity, for my power, for my income, so that I have a lot of friends. Maybe I'm, who knows why I'm holding that stick. Yes, maybe I'm not pulled in temptation. I'm not doing the worst things that society does. Maybe I'm not allowing myself to fall to the ground like a snake. Instead of being held up like a stick, like a man who's holding a stick and holding it for all the glory. And maybe I'm even doing it to serve Hashem. But who knows what my real motive is? Maybe all of this is just all about me. So let's go to Moshe's second symbol, the second sign. Second sign was his hands. What do your hands represent? Your work. And Moshe Rabbeinu said, when you put your hand in your pocket, that means your God saying to Moshe, you put your hand over here, it's like you're resting it on your lap. It means it shows a sign of laziness. When you take your hands and you're lazy, and you're not using them for every, anything, then it's like sarad. It's like a handful of leprosy. It's like it's dead. You weren't put on this earth to relax and to chill on beaches. You were not put on this earth to take vacations all day and eat dinner out, out every night. That's not why you were put on this earth. Okay, good. So, okay, good. So now I work hard. Instead, he puts his hand back in to work. Good. If I work hard, that's good. That means I'm done. But how about if I went out for dinner Sunday night? Is that too much vacation? How about if I'm going away winter vacation? Is that too much vacation? I don't know. I really don't know. How about even if I work very hard? Not every person that's working very hard is doing that much. How many people do you know that are busy doing nothing? Raise your hand if you know someone who's busy doing nothing. That Don't raise your hand. But we all know people that are busy doing nothing. There's so many people out there. In fact, a lot of people like to make money just to make themselves think that they're productive. Because look how much money I'm making. I must be productive. No, there's a lot of people that are busy doing nothing and making money over nothing. And they're doing all kinds of work. And they're not really doing anything. And they're not really accomplishing anything. And they're not really getting anywhere. I know a person. This man, you try to know a person. He lives, doesn't live in the community. He lives in somewhere five towns. Okay, this man owes a million dollars. He owes out a million dollars. But he acts like he's the richest man on the block. So there's only three people he owes the money to. So those three people are angry at him and upset at him. So he says, you know what? I'll just ignore those three people. To everybody else, I look like I'm living life. I'm a great person. I'm kind. I'm friendly. I'm sweet. I'm nice. Is that guy living a good life or is he a fraud? I don't know. He goes to work. He works hard. Is he a good life or is he a fraud? What do you think? He owes a million dollars. And he does a kid, goes for dinner, goes on vacations, he does all those wonderful things, but he asks, is he a good man or is he a fraud? Looks like a good guy, but the reality might be that he's a fraud. So just because you're busy, and just because you're doing things, and even just because you're making money, still doesn't tell me that you answered the question. I'll go to Moshe Rabbeinu's last sign. Let me go to his last sign. His last sign was water that turned into blood. You know what that blood was about? Can you open that door because it's got very hot? Are you hot or is it just me? Oh, because I'm boiling. So, and it goes by me. Always. Five more minutes and we're done. By the way, next week we have class and then we're off for two weeks. Why? Because it's winter vacation. Even if we're not going on vacation. Oh, one second. I just said that. As I'm at the point of the class of your hand, you can't be lazy. Wow. You see, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I am wrong. I'm here. So then I have to give the class because you're here? Yeah. I'll give you one more. So the dam. 
Moshe Rabbeinu, the Jew told, God told Moshe Rabbeinu, take a cup of water and pour it to the ground. And out of it will come blood. What's the blood? The blood is the blood of those little babies that were killed by the Egyptians. And Hashem is telling Moshe, the Jewish people, don't think I forgot. Don't think I forgot. When you see clear water, that means you see life going in its regular routine. Don't think that I forgot the blood that was spilled. Don't think I forgot the punishment that the Egyptians deserve. The message, the third message God was sending the Jewish people was the message that even if you think that life looks like normal water, normal water, clear, doesn't look like anything's happening, I am paying attention to what's happening inside and I'm taking care of what's happening inside. So maybe that's the message for the Jewish people, that if I'm living life and I see God everywhere, then maybe I'm doing good. Maybe I'm doing good if I can answer the first question well, if I have control of my stick. Maybe I'm doing good if I can answer the second question well, if I am working hard. Or maybe I'm doing well if I can answer the third question well, if I can see God in everything. Like this cute little story. My daughter was married, has, a, has two children now. She said to me the other day, she says, Dad, I ran all over the place to find my son the right pacifier. If you have any kids, you have a kid with a pacifier, there's the right one, and then there's no one. Every other one does ineffective, it's nothing. It's like putting a stick in the mouth. So now you got to get the right one. So she's fine to find the right one. She says, I went to 10 different stores every way possible to find the right pacifier. She says, and then I called up my husband and I said, that you know what, look what we do for our children. So I says to her, Sharon, that's a beautiful story. I said, then what was the next thought you had? She said, my next thought was, that you know, we are Hashem's children, and look what He does for us. I said, Sharon, you got step one, and you got step three. You missed step two. She says, what are you talking about? I said, you got what you did for your kids, and you got what God does for His children. How about stopping and saying, wow, if I'm doing this for my kids, that means Daddy did that for me. <laughs> says, oh, I didn't think of that. <laughs> so maybe if we see God in everything we're doing, maybe that's good. But that can't be it either. Because there's a lot of people that are not good people that talk about God all the time. So you know where I'm left? You know what I realized? It's impossible to answer that question. And we're not supposed to have the answer to the question. God wants us to live on this earth without knowing where we stand. God wants us to live on this earth no, being thinking about this question every single day. Yes, there are things that give us clues. Yes, if I see Hashem in everything, that's a clue. Yes, if Hashem is showing me signs and I'm meeting the girl on the plane, that's a clue. Yes, if people like me and what I'm doing and I'm a good person, yes, that's a clue. Yes, if I am working hard every single day and I'm not just keeping my hand in my chest, yes, that's a clue. If I have control of my temptations, yes, that is also a clue. But none of those things mean that you have the right answer to the question. Because it's still possible that you could have done better. And the reality is, Hashem wants life to be that you never know the score. You know why we like sports? Because we know the score. We know who won, we know who lost. We might say it's fair, not fair. We know who won, we know who lost. But in life, we never know. 
You never know who won. You never know who lost. Is the person who teaches Torah the one who won? Is the person who has good kids? Or is the person who has a good marriage? Is the person who makes a lot of money? The person who gives a lot of charity? The person who studies a lot of Torah? The person who teaches a lot of Torah? The person who gives a lot of chesed? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And I don't know. You never know in life who won and who lost. And you know what's so funny? When you think about it a lot, as you've said, as I've told you, I've been thinking about this the last few weeks a lot. Abraham Avinu, when he passed away, also didn't get a final score. Abraham Avinu passed away on a world where he had one good son. That was it. No powerful stage. You know, don't you ever wish, don't you ever wish funerals would happen a month before people died? I'm not joking. Wouldn't it be nice if a person got a month before they died, got all the people that are close to them, would get up and make wonderful speeches and they'd get to see how many people come or these days, how many people join the Zoom and how many people have wonderful things to say about Wouldn't that be great? No. The minute after a person dies, that's when they get all the glory. And people live, they're 70, 80, 90 years old. No one gets to send off dinner with 2,000 people telling you your life was a success. Abraham Avinu died, he had one good kid, game over. Yitzchak Avinu died, he had one son that was bad, and he had another son who thought his life was a failure. Because when Yitzchak Avinu died, Yaakov Avinu was in the middle of mourning the loss of Yosef. Yosef was sold 10 years earlier. He was... Ten years away from being found. Yitzhak Avinu passes away. Uh, again, th that's the final score. That's the life he lived. One bad son, Esav. The other son, Yaakov, is, is in mourning. That's his life. Yaakov, Yitzhak Avinu's life concluded. I'm not sure if you're getting me. Concluded with two sons. A bad son and another son who thought he was a failure. And that was the end of Yaakov, Yitzhak Avinu's life. How sad is that? What do you want? Some kind of send-off dinner that says, yes, you did it. You became a forefather. Your life was perfect. But no, he never got that check. He never got the scoreboard in the sky to tell them, this is how you're doing. Yaakov Avinu too. Yaakov Avinu was nervous for so much of his adult life that he was a failure. And even on the last day of his life, when he wanted to tell his children about when Mashiach was coming, he forgot and he thought, maybe I failed. Still now, maybe I failed. Because God wants that question to be on our mind and to challenge us and for it to in some ways torment us and in some ways motivate us every single day. Our responsibility is to think about this question. How am I doing in God's book? Not how am I doing in my friend's book. Not how popular am I. Am I. Not how many excuses do I have. Not how similar am I to my friends. Because that's not the questions you're going to get after 120. The question you're going to get is, I don't want to hear excuses. I don't want to hear because Hillel did it, and Elazar did it, and Yosef did it. What would you do? Did you do what you were able to do or not? That question is supposed to be a question that challenges us every single day. Do we have clues along the way? We have many clues. You can see Hashem helping you sometimes. Like I said, if good people like you, you can see that sometimes. If you have control of your temptations, if you're a hard worker, if you're someone who sees God in everything you're doing, all of those things are clues, but they're not the answer. And they're not an excuse. And you could have all of those clues and no one's going to excuse you for eating that unkosher food. And no one's going to excuse you for treating Shabbat that way. None of those answers, nothing. I don't care how hard you work. I don't care how nice you are. I don't care how much your friends like you. I don't care how much you see Hashem and everything. None of that is going to excuse transgressing Shabbat. None of that is going to excuse saying, speaking Malashonara. None of that is going to excuse deciding not to pray one day. None of those things are going to answer that challenge. 
But here's what we can do. And I'll end with this. What we can do is do small acts every day or many times a day that we could at least be sure that act was good. You can pray in the morning and know, I prayed well today. You can do an act of chesed and say, in the scheme of things, I don't know what the score is, but I know that that chesed was great. You could keep Shabbat in a way that you could say, I don't know where I rate amongst other people, but I know that that Shabbat was perfect. That you can do. You can do small actions that you can be sure that at least that action, that moment answers the question. At least that moment checks the box. At least that moment I could say, God, I don't know, at the 24 hours of my day, I can't explain it all. But that hour that I was learning Torah, I have no question that that was fantastic. We can do that. I'll tell you one little anecdote. It's just a little example of one thing that's being done right and one thing that's being done well. And I just read this in an article yesterday, and I thought it was fascinating. The whole world is running to do this vaccine. It's a big story. Which country is getting it the best? Israel. Israel. It's unbelievable. In Israel, right when it was available, emails went out to the whole country that anyone over 60 could take the vaccine. If you responded to your email within a day or so, you got yourself an appointment. And I saw one person write, answered, said, I went now, I was told to go to a stadium. I was told to go to a stadium. And I get to the stadium, and I'm expecting, you know, there's all these people who respond to the email on the same day. It's going to be bedlam. She says, I get to the stadium, and I know exactly my spot. I waited maybe five minutes, and I was given the vaccine. And then the next person also, the place was completely quiet, like so organized. It was unbelievable. She says, and then when I was done, someone came over to me and gave me like a booklet of toys, of games. I said, you realize everyone who's taking this is obviously over 60. Why are you giving me a booklet of toys or games? And then she realized, who's taking it? People that are over 60. People that spent the last 10 months without their grandchildren. Now that they take the vaccine, what's the first thing they're going to want to do? Is spend time, play time with, with their grandchildren. I don't know about the whole country. I know that that action is being done right. And another person wrote that they had someone on their block who was an older woman who had no one to, to, to get, no, it wasn't easy for her to get around. So this couple that lived on her block said, we'll take you to get the vaccine. They took her to the stadium. The woman, the husband went, in, excuse me, the wife went inside with the woman and the husband stayed in the car. Ten minutes later, the wife calls the husband from the car, come inside. He comes inside and says, what do you want from me? They said, if we're a couple, that could bring an older person to get the vaccine, we deserve the vaccine too. So the husband and wife also got it. Even though we're young, even though it's not time. There are moments you could say, this you're doing right. That's a moment you could say, I don't know about the whole country, they can't get their election straight, but I know this. <laughs> this they're doing right. And your life can be the same. Will you ever know what the final score is? No. And no one around you could even encourage you and say, don't worry, you'll be okay, you're pretty good. Because no one knows your thoughts, and no one knows your potential, and no one knows how much you could have done. And no one knows when your excuses are a good one, and when your excuses are a joke. Nobody knows. But you can do small actions, and at least for that action, you can answer the question. But for everything else we do, we're supposed to go through life. 
waking up every single day, being reminded that as Jews, our number one goal is not to ask ourselves, what do I make for dinner? And which errand am I doing today? And how do I make an income? My number one goal is to be motivated and challenged by the scariest question of life. Where do I stand in Hashem's book? A question that you'll never know the answer to as long as you're alive. Thank you. Thank you.